Oh, I think Napoleon was a European figure. I don't think there's a lot of daydreaming on St. Helena in that in that particular respect. What I would say is his vision of Europe, he had one, was very much a French vision. I saw the Emperor, this world saw, riding out of the city on reconnaissance. It is indeed a wonderful sensation to see such an individual who, concentrated here at a single point, astride a horse, reaches out over the world and masters it. You might recognise Hegel's description of Napoleon Bonaparte, the Corsican-born Emperor of the French Empire, who ruled the fate of Europe for nearly two decades. Now. Why on earth are my two favourite European affairs podcasters talking about Napoleon I hear you say? First because of his 200th anniversary of his death in exile at St Helena in the middle of the Southern Atlantic Ocean. More fundamentally, a major red thread of this podcast all along has always been about what makes us Europeans and what constitutes Europe's DNA. We are both always very surprised that with the sole exception of World War II, history is seldom brought up in this conversation about what makes us Europeans. We want to bridge this gap and cover what we believe are fundamentally European moments, but also fundamentally European figures. As a Frenchman, I always saw Napoleon Bonaparte as this mystical hero. The idea he might be a European figure could ring hollow in many other European countries, like in Jorge Spain for example, which had a very bloody guerrilla war against France. But Europe undeniably owes a lot to Napoleon. If you are in continental Europe, your legal and administrative structure is most likely directly inherited from Napoleonic France, and you probably owe him the destruction once and for all of Europe's old feudal system, where Napoleon's boots walked the seeds of enlightenment and the destruction of feudalism were sowed. Does that make Napoleon a great European vogue? Our guest Michael Browers and Adam Zamoyski have their thoughts on that. We have been wanting to focus on what makes us European. If you like this episode and want to share your thoughts on the pod, do let us know. You will not be bothered by any Geico ads throughout this entire podcast, so enjoy. But the best way for you to support us is to share the pod with friends, rate and review it, we always love to read your messages. And most importantly, if you are new to the show, subscribe so you can come back next week. So be uncommonly decent by rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the love. Now, on to the show. Well, we are very glad to have with us to talk about this great question of Napoleon the Great European two fantastic historians and experts of Napoleon, we have Michael Browers, who's one of the most, one of the foremost experts of Napoleon in the United Kingdom, alongside Adam, of course. He's a professor of Western European history at Oxford University. He's the author of a brilliant two-part Napoleon biography, Soldier of Destiny 2015 in Napoleon, The Spirit of the Age 2020. And there should be a third part coming soon at some point, Mike, can you confirm this? Uh Yes, I'm doing my best. Thank you, Michael. And on the other side, we've got Adam Zamaski. Adam Zamaski is back from the last podcast episode we did on Poland, and he's now very gracious enough to talk about Napoleon. Um, you, know, you may remember him from last week, of course. He is the author of many distinguished works such as Poland, the history, and Napoleon, your Napoleon biography is Napoleon, the man behind the myth, which you published in 2018. Michael and Adam, thank you very much. And Adam, welcome back. Um, so let's dive in. Napoleon's empire. He had Dutch, German, Italian auditeurs who were all oiling the administrative cogs of his empire, you know, including the great Cesare Balbo, who was a future mentor of Cavour, the unifier of Italy. His army had a Polish marshal. During the invasion of Russia, his army clearly, clearly became a patchwork of different nationalities. The empire at some point stretched from Amsterdam to Rome, from Croatia to Spain. His second wife was Austrian. His mistresses were Italian and Polish. Was Napoleon really a European figure? Or is there a little bit of, you know, founder V self-portraiting when he was uh, locked down in St. Helena? Michael. Uh, oh, I think Napoleon was a European figure. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of daydreaming on St. Helena in that, in that particular respect. 
what I would say is his vision of Europe, and he had one, uh, was very much a French vision. Hmm. You know, it was going to be molded in the image that, that the French elites had, or a section of them, had created uh, you know, during the revolution and particularly in the first five years of his reign when the great reforms take place. Um, it, was a, it, it was a European vision, but it was about drawing Europeans to Paris, hmm. into the system, making them, you know, adapting them to the system. That, that would be my view. Adam, what do you think of that? Um, well, it slightly depends what you mean by a, a European. Uh, he, in his formative years, um, embraced a rabid uh, Cors Corsican uh, patriotic nationalism, uh, partly in order to assuage his inferiority complex, admittedly, um, and then decided that after all, Corsica didn't work for him, and so became a great French patriot. Mm. And um, France was everything to him uh, for a time. But then once he really had become emperor and, and was dominating Europe in many ways, uh, not just physically, but, but through his influence, um, he uh, he just sort of rose above the whole thing, it seems to me, and, and the whole thing rather escaped him. Yes, and I think for him, the world was Europe. There were colonies out there to be taken, but really Europe was the world. And and I don't really think that he, he had a, a vision of a sort of European identity as, as such. And I think, as Michael Bruss says, um, he had... His, his mind was formed very much by the French Enlightenment in his reading. Mm. Um, so it was a, a French Enlightenment view of, of, of the, the modern world. But above all, I think rather than some idea of Europe, I think he was, he was more interested in creating the ideal modern polity. And that was the result of the, or the, the, the heritage, I suppose, of the French um, Enlightenment um, internationalism, which, was, which rejected the idea of um, nation states and, and um, uh, thought of a kind of re republic of intelligence and, um, and, and of a new age in which these things wouldn't matter. Michael, what's your thought on uh, Adam's response? I think... You've got to see the vision of Europe as something that he himself absorbs from France. He's, it, this is a generational thing. I don't think it's about Napoleon's personal thoughts as such. I think this is something he genuinely shared with uh, a very significant part of the French elites that emerged from the revolution. There is a way of running a country. There is a way of running a polity, as, as Adam said. Uh, what they conceive to be the modern way through certain institutions in a certain way. And wherever he goes in Europe, that is imposed with varying degrees of success. Um, I don't think any of them ever do, not really to take issue, but I think to look at it a different way, rise above it. They're working for it on the ground, certainly right to the end to make a certain model of the state work. Uh, and to me, that's what makes um, it worth talking about imperialism in the Napoleonic context, because however briefly experienced, the vision is very clear. Mm. That's the vision forged in, in, in France. Um, you know, that's the vision forged among the French. I, I certainly agree with, with Adam when he says, um, you know, Europe is the world. You know, co colonies, the colonial dream comes and goes, but it's all about servicing France and servicing the empire. You know, uh, Haiti and Louisiana are there to service France, mm. to service the wider empire. Um, Spanish America, if they can get their hands on it, is again there to service Europe. 
there are no ambitions beyond that. There's not much vision beyond that. Um, you know, I'm not one for going global about this, but I think it is a very French vision. And what you'll find, in my view, for what it's worth, is that there is a kind of an inner empire where either the French are there a long time and implant their regime, mm. or simply because they find kindred spirits, you know, as they do in, say, many of the Mittelstaaten in Germany, um, you know, guys who worked for Joseph II in Spain, guys who worked for Charles III. That's the call that all goes, always goes up. Find me the men who worked for Joseph II. It's true in Croatia. It's true. It's it, true in Slovenia. It's true in the middle Saturn of Germany. You know, and, and this is the bedrock that you build on. People like yourself with a similar vision. And I, th I, th I think that's very, to me, that's very clear. Maybe it's too clear, but it's certainly clear to me. Adam, do, do, do you want to respond? Yes, I, I think we're probably trying to say much the same thing. Um, all I'm saying is that, you know, we're, we're slightly talking about um, these days about Napoleon creating Europe in inverted commas, and we're immediately thinking of the European Union and mm -hmm. the, yeah. ideals, the ideals of Jean Monnet and so on and so forth. And I don't think that was anywhere in... Um, in Napoleon's um, uh, view. Uh, Michael Bros is absolutely right in that uh, it was a French world because, of course, the entire French Enlightenment um, thought the civilized world was French mm. in the sense that, um, and indeed, in, in those days, people used to say, I, you know, Russians, Poles, Germans used to say, I am French in the 18th century. And they weren't French, but what they meant was they embraced French civilization, the Enlightenment, French culture, the arts, and so on. Um, and uh, the, they politely ignored the fact that most of the Enlightenment started in Scotland and, 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 um, and, and, and um, in Britain generally. Uh, but the idea was that, that the new world was French in that sense, not in a nationalistic sense. Um, and I think that what they were trying to impose um, and gloriously failing until Napoleon came along was this vision of the ideal polity, which of course was French because they had, or they thought they had dreamt it up and that it was based on French thought and French culture. Um, and the great thing was that they'd had 10 years, for God's sake, all these frightfully clever French chaps who'd started the revolution, and they couldn't get anywhere with it all. Mm. Um, and the essence of Napoleon was uh, that, and here I think that a very important element is Napoleon's character yeah. he was a he had a, an extraordinarily good mind but a very ordered mind it was very much about putting things in boxes and um keeping tabs on all those boxes he could obviously think outside those boxes and so on but he was a tremendous tidier upper and he came into a world which was an absolute mess and the French Revolution, this glorious fruit of the Enlightenment, had made it an even worse mess of it. And he, his instincts were those of a, were, were there just to, to sort this mess out and to, um, to impose order. And the other aspect of Napoleon's character was that he was. Um, he had actually very petit bourgeois values, we might say, yeah. uh, to put it um, you know, more strongly than that. And he hated disorder, what he used to call disorder. And yeah. you know, he hated people philandering, people, um, he hated loose morals, he, he hated people stepping out of line, um, didn't like messy things. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the clearing of Paris was, um, he didn't like the picturesque, the medieval, it all had to be straight lines and, and clear cut. Uh, there was almost a fear of disorder there. Um, and um, 
and and he was a control freak in this sense he had to micromanage so yes but he he was imposing um but it was not a sort of um it, it, it's what we really what, what we mean by the word french in this case um and what we mean by the word european and i think that that uh, i don't think he was thinking in terms of europe in the way that we speak of europe i think he was he was thinking in terms of you know creating the new world which would it, it had to be um, the french world mm. so is it fair to say um you're talking about building the ideal policy is it fair to say to some extent this uh, european vision of napoleon was at times um slightly technocratic you know there's somewhat of a flirtation with end of history tropes i've got two quotes of napoleon here which i thought were really interesting um he said to Fouché, I believe, I wish to build a European system, a European code of laws, a single currency, a European judiciary. And there's another one which I thought was really insightful about this kind of technocratic end of history tropes. Is he also said, one of these days, I'm convinced we will see the empire of the West reborn as tired peoples rush to place themselves under the rule of a best governed nation. Now, this kind of technocratic optimism um, seems to be a constant throughout his life when he goes to Egypt, when he goes to Spain, um, he has this conviction that this his modernizing yoke will be welcomed um, in, in these countries. Did the universalistic legacy of Enlightenment blind Napoleon to these national differences, these different histories? Um, uh, what do you make of this of this uh, technocratic approach? Maybe Michael first. I think that's very true. I think one point to make as well is that this isn't just Napoleon. I mean, I'm, 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 I can't help it. I'm thinking towards my next book when Napoleon's over. Hmm. This isn't just Napoleon. It, re it represents the values of a whole generation of educated Frenchmen who's come out of the revolution. You know, when, when, you know Adam was talking about quite right about, um, you know, loathing disorder, you know, wanting to get things right, wanting to calm hmm. things down. That's his strongest card because there are an awful lot of men who've come out of the revolution who feel exactly the same, you know, and they look at Europe uh, and they do, you know, look at whatever Europe is. Some Europeans are like us and some are not. But again, they see disorder. They see archaism. Napoleon isn't the only one who wants to sweep away the picturesque. I mean, Gothic is Gothic is bad. You know, Gothic, Gothic is, is, is useless. Uh, I could give you a million examples of this, not just from Napoleon, but from Napoleonic officials out there in Italy, in Spain, in Germany. I've spent most of my life working on that. Um, and, and, and therefore, you know, he's touched a nerve in the French. In a, and, and to a certain extent, in, to a certain extent, he will find collaborators in Italy, in Spain, in parts of Germany, you know, as, as I've said before, when it comes to certain things that, you know, you mentioned in, in that very famous quote, he does come very close to creating a European legal system mm. and a European magistracy. That is one of the things that's fascinated me for years that I'm still plugging away at the code and not, not just the civil code gets all the headlines, but the real one you have to think about is the code of procedure how a judicial system works. The French develop that. The code of procedure goes wherever the French go, along with the civil code, along with the criminal code. And that in most places tends to stay. And even where it's dropped, like in Cetere Balbo's native Piedmont, uh, where it never gets off the ground, like in Spain, or where it stays by and large, say in the Netherlands with a few adaptations in most of Germany, particularly say the Southern states, uh, it's there and, and it remains after his fall in, in different, well, very much in inverted commas, I agree with Adam, national context, but in the context of many of the other states, which are now independent of France. And it remains to this day. European magistrates can, can work with each other on technical levels that an Anglo-Saxon magistrate just can't possibly imagine. Mm. And that does go back to this. There is talk of a European currency that is going to be the franc that Gaudin creates so successfully in the early years, the Molière. 
Uh, it is dropped simply because it's impractical. You know, it is. But if you look at the basic institutions of the public sphere of most European countries, it just so happens to be that we don't live in one. But in most European countries, a great deal of that dream, well, that vision did come to fruition. It just didn't come to fruition in an imperial context. Um, Adam, what do you make of his uh, idea of uh, yeah, Napoleon's vision being technocratic? And, um, and, and indeed, I, I think this is um, one of the fundamental um, reasons why um, Britain left the European Union is that there is such a fundamental difference between the Anglo-Saxon way of doing things, procedure, legal procedure, but not just that, really everywhere, um, and that which um, obtains on the continent. And it's quite true, I'm sitting in Poland at the moment, which has a mongrel um, legal and, and procedural system uh, at whose base lie um, remains, but very small remains of pre-Napoleonic um, uh, common law, um, followed by a huge um, dollop of Napoleonic uh, law and above all procedural um, custom, which was then uh, had a whole lot of Tsarist or German or Austrian um, bureaucracy uh, thrown onto it, followed by um, Soviet um, uh, procedures. But actually, uh, the whole thing of going to a notary and buying a house, selling a house, doing anything, it is so Napoleonic in the sense that, that it, it, it reminds me of when I used to live in France at a time, and there is everywhere that fundamental uh, of <clears throat> the Napoleonic system, which was that whatever you do, you have to faire acte de présence in front of some representative of the state, be he ever so humble. Um, and there is, it is, as Michael says, it's, it's absolutely there. And, um, and it's true, it, it, it was, as he says, it, it wasn't just thought out by Napoleon, by no means. Um, indeed, he didn't write the Napoleonic Code. Um, he just banged heads together and got them to, to agree on it because, and this is his great genius, is, um, is that while everybody had been talking about it for 10 years, nobody could actually get anything done. And he came along mm -hmm. and uh, mobilized them, brought all the most brilliant minds together, um, stopped them arguing, uh, stopped them theorizing too much, and told them to just get on with it and write down what they meant in as few words as possible. This is, there, there's, there really is, uh, I think, a, a connecting uh, thread in, in much of what you both uh, explained, which is the, you know, the idea that this, this empire was, was an empire of ideas that was larger than the, the, the political forms it, it may have taken at, at specific points in time, and that it, it, was, a, it was a living uh, empire and that the enlightened hearts, of, and, hearts and minds of, of vast uh, portions of, of the European elite. And I wonder if we could maybe flesh some of this out and some of the contradictions that that uh, come with this in terms of strategic thought and, and, and geopolitics. There's um, there's another great uh, scholar who is uh, popularly um, uh, renowned in, in, in France, Patrice Gunifé, uh, uh, who I think wrote recently a very uh, famed uh, kind of dual uh, portrait of, of Napoleon and, and de Gaulle. And uh, it so happened that it came out at a time, I believe, or slightly uh, before uh, a whole debate emerged on, on a European scale, this whole new notion of strategic autonomy. And in, in Guinefe's uh, book, he connects the strategic thought of uh, Charles de Gaulle and uh, Napoleon uh, as you know, being, being both sort of heirs to the French uh, strategic tradition of using Europe as a springboard for French uh, interests. And, and, and I think both of you can bring a lot of uh, Strategic history to bear in in, uh, in in Napoleon's particular case, where um, you know the the particular interest of, of countries 
was was a time sacrifice. What do you make of this connection of this uh, enduring legacy of uh, Napoleonic uh, grand strategy in uh, some of these the strategic debates that are happening today at the EU level, uh, and even uh, you know, and even broadly, do you, do you see sort of a a, um, a continuing uh, thread of strategic thought that runs through Napoleon that de Gaulle may have been to different extents uh, throughout his life, also a tributary of, uh, and that ultimately is now being sort of reincarnated in, in the thought and, and in the, the, the rhetoric of Emmanuel Macron when he speaks of strategic autonomy as Europe being strategically autonomous and a, and a powerful uh, entity on, on the world stage. But what that what is really vehicled through that for a lot of people outside of not just outside of France, I think within France, what a lot of people see in France is that there's this sort of Napoleonic strand of strategic thought. What would you make? Uh, what would you make of this? Um, <clears throat> well, the first thing to be said, actually, is that uh, Napoleon didn't have a great strategic sense when it came to um, foreign affairs. And this is what brought him down. Uh, he didn't have a long view of where he was going. He kept changing his um, objectives and indeed changing his alliances, uh, which was um, ultimately very uh, self-destructive. Uh, I think he what, he, was, what he tried to put in place after Tilsit, after the great um, uh, agreement with, with Russia in 1807, was um, the idea of a great sort of security system, a, a, a universal treaty which would govern fundamentally the whole of um, Central and Western Europe. Um, and theoretically, it wasn't, you know, it, it had echoes of the Carolingian Empire. And indeed, there was sort of, well, he, he, he was certainly fascinated by the idea of recreating a Holy Roman Empire, but based on France rather than Vienna. And, but the problem was that he, I think, without meaning to, um, undermined it by just imposing French dominance and French, um, particularly economic imperatives, particularly because there was an economic war with, with Britain which he couldn't engage with on the battlefield. Um, and this, of course, undermined the whole enterprise because he turned all his allies and his um, auxiliaries into um, enemies. They had to, he simply um, starved them of their, of their economic lifeblood and um, forced them to, to throw off his uh, dominance. Uh, so there was a total lack of strategy, I would say, there. Uh, and because the, the supposedly um, fine enterprise uh, was actually turned into a kind of French feudal venture, uh, not, not intentionally at all, I don't think, but um, that's the way it, it turned out. I think there's a great deal in what Adam said that uh, is very, you know, is very pertinent, very right. I think one thing you've got to remember when we compare Napoleon and de Gaulle in, in this, shall we say, extra French context, is that the circumstances are very, very different. Uh, de Gaulle is trying to reestablish France after a crushing humiliation in, in the Second World War. Napoleon is building for a long time until 1812, really, on success after success after success in a kind of a hubristic way. But where it breaks down, I think this is another aspect we could bring in usefully, is if he has a strategic vision, and I agree with Adam, I don't think he does. I think the, the empire grows in response to things. You know, he's defending the legacy of the revolutionary gains up to 1805. You know, he's... Um, He's dealing with treacherous allies up to 1807. And then there is Tilsit, as Adam said, who, you know, Adam knows a great deal about Tilsit. The attempt to build an entente that, that doesn't work. Talleyrand chides him. You can't hitch your wagon to the Russians. Russia's an innately aggressive power. It won't work. 
But where there's a red thread is the fear of Britain. And this is a card Napoleon plays again and again with the Europeans unsuccessfully because of the hardships brought by the blockade, because of what my old tutor Jeff Ellis used to call the one-way common market, the unwet, the uncommon market he imposes, which is frankly economic colonialism. But the one card he always plays right to the end is for goodness sake, aren't you paying attention? The British will dominate you economically. If there is a collective security system to keep Britain out of Europe, to keep them out of the European markets, we can protect European textiles. We can protect European coal and steel. We can protect most European agriculture. The British will dominate this continent economically, even if they can't do it militarily, unless you listen to me. And this runs from beginning to end. It's very much, you'll be sorry. Uh, and you know, he, he's saying this in 1800 and he's saying it on St. Helena. You know, th that's, I think, the one strategic red thread, that the geopolitical red thread, that we have got to stand up to Britain or we will be swamped by its industrial revolution. And another generation, people like, uh, like Michelet, like Jules Michelet, pick this up and say, do we want hard times here? Do we want that Dickensian world here? No, we don't. Napoleon was right. Um, you know, if the surest way to bring yourself down in late 18th century or early 19th century France is to strike a trade deal with Britain. You know, there, there is something that's in common. But I think Adam's right. I think the empire grows in response to crises. Um, I think only towards the end, after 1812, does the mind really concentrate and say, look, the Russians are going to dominate. Uh, now, he's unsuccessful in this because he's gone too far. Nobody trusts him. But we can maybe get the Austrians back on side because they will be, if they have any sense, they will be frightened of the Russians. Mm -hmm. And you know, he's, he's right that they're frightened of the Russians, but that can wait until they're finished with him. Mm -hmm. But he's right that they're afraid. Now, you look at, say, Charles Stewart, Castlereagh's brother, when he sees the Russian Imperial Guard pouring through the pass between Belfort and Mulhouse. He's terrified. Mm. We've mm. created a monster. Mm. Napoleon's not stupid. He's not, he's not wrong, but he's, he's lost the thread in that that dealing with Russia can wait till they're rid of him. As you mentioned, de Gaulle and, and, and Macron, um, I think there is, there is something which is worth mentioning, is that... Um, really from the moment that the French Revolution got going, uh, a, a kind of millenarian note entered Polish, um, French political life. Um, and it's notable that after 10 years of the revolution swinging this way and that way and going um, nowhere specific, when Napoleon landed from Egypt in the south of France, he was greeted as people called him the savior. Mm. And the concept of the savior has um, become quite rooted in subliminally in French political life because the revolution was, was really a complete revolution. It was, it wasn't in the old in the old days. There were plenty of revolutions in in um, in history where a new set of people took over and changed things. But the French Revolution completely upended everything. Um, they changed the calendar. They changed uh, absolutely everything. They tried to change religion. They tried to impose um, a completely new world uh, and to throw out everything that had to do with the old, including names. And um, as a result, this started a seesaw in French politics, which is largely still there. Uh, and it um, inhibits um, consensual government uh, and 
you know, you've got these wild swings. There was Napoleon who tried, and this was what was important about Napoleon and really notable, was that he tried to marry the old and the new. Uh, ultimately uh, failed because he really bungled things. He was very successful in many ways. Then the Bourbons came back and tried to reverse everything and throw out the entire acquis of the last 25 years, mm. which didn't go down well. Uh, Louis-Philippe came along and tried again to marry the old and the new, uh, but that didn't work out well. Napoleon III came along and tried to do his version of a Napoleonic uh, reversal. Then you've got the Paris Commune, the French the Third Republic, uh, then you've got terrific swings between right and left between the First and Second World Wars, um, and so on. And, and France is always looking for somebody who's going to come along and sort out the mess and make everything right. And de Gaulle was such a saviour, um, because at the end of the war, when France, having rarely um, gone really gone through its worst period in, in, in the whole of its history um, and uh, feeling the shame of it all, uh, was, was saved by de Gaulle who turned up and said, no, it's all right. Um, there was a good France fighting the good war all along and we can all look at that and um, forget about the rest. And in an odd way, um, in a certainly less spectacular way, um, Macron, who popped up out of nowhere, supposedly an apolitical person, completely fresh um, young man who had nothing to do with any of the established parties and so on. And he was going to come and sort everything out and, um, and open a, a new door. So there, there, is a, there are echoes of Napoleon um, always there, I think, in, in, in the French political psyche. Sure. And it's, it really is way of, as you've just done, Adam, geostrategic kind of back to of, you know, the, the saviorship. And, and, and I think Jenny Faye uh, does it to some extent as well. And, it, and to take things a little bit further, even at the risk of doing what the French call présentism, which they hate, but it's, it's also something that is even, um, that is even incarnated in the, in the political institutions that, uh, that France is has maintained right over over the years in the centralization of power and the presidential system and because i think i want to talk a little bit about the what napoleon left as a european legacy because it seems to me we talked a lot a bit about the technocratic uh, legacy but the technocratic legacy left europe there's there's a flip side to it which is the death of feudalism something that really fascinates me when i when i read biographies of napoleon is he essentially wrecks very ancient feudal systems she had been around for a long time. Now, from the very small, uh, you've got the Malta, which was still ruled by the old Knights Hospitaller, which was propelled pretty much overnight into the 19th century, a week uh, after its invasion by Napoleon. Um, he created a constitution, he abolished slavery, uh, he abolished all the noblemen's privileges, and he did the same thing with the very large. He abolished the Holy Roman Empire, who had been around for a thousand years. Um, is this modernizing thrust uh, really, uh, this end of feudalism, the core of Napoleon's European legacy. And let's do a little bit of Ukraine here. How does how does Europe's um, history work out without Napoleon, without this wrecking of the old feudal system? Was it was it was this reckoning due any anytime soon, or did he really catalyze these these trends and 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 move history uh, in different ways? Would we have seen the Italian unification, the German unification, this quickly if it weren't for Napoleon? Uh, Michael first. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not terribly keen on counterfactual history, to be honest. I know, historians hate it, but that's why yes. I like <laughs> but, uh, but let me put it this way. I think, I think the abolition of feudalism in, in, in the Grand Europe, as opposed to France, ties into something else. Um, it, it was certainly his intention, his collaborator's intention to make sure this happened. One persnickety point of order, he did not abolish the Holy Roman Empire, it abolished itself. Hmm. Francis abolished it because he was afraid Napoleon was gonna get himself elected emperor. 
Um, and so he, he dissolved it himself before Napoleon could do anything. Napoleon chipped away at it um, you know, by mediatizing so many of the small states and making, he actually, I think, retarded German unification in that respect. Because by the mediatization of the Mittelstaaten, he actually made polities like Bavaria, like Baden, viable units. And his vision was to make Westphalia, for example, and Berg viable units. They went with him. So I actually think that, that um, mm. on one level, he retarded it. On another, he helped it in the same way that we were, we were talking about the institutions of empire. Um, you know, with Napoleon, the Rhine becomes a highway. Now, they're determined in 1814 that that's going to remain so. You know, that, that, that a lot of the infrastructure he had built in the Confederation of the Rhine is going to remain. But, of course, this, this actually makes it difficult for, 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 for Prussia and Austria because they are afraid of this taking root. They would have been happier with the smaller states they could have dominated. You can't dominate Napoleon's settlement of Germany as as easily as you could have the old one. So I'm not sure about that. Um, the unification of Italy was brought up, brought about by a ruthless Napoleonic clone, the the the, the kingdom of, of of Piedmont Sardinia. Um, so in that sense, it, it hastened it. Um, but I mean that you could argue really the real unification of Italy in the Napoleonic mold has never taken place. Um, so I think it's hard to project that far. But one of the interesting things you find, and if I may so bring it back to the French uh, tropes that we began with, is that when, Nap I, I think Napoleon has a particular vision, both for France and for his empire on a European uh, scale, is the blending of the old and the new, Raymond Amalgam is a stopgap for me. I don't know what Adam will think about this. It's a stopgap. His real goal is to move things on to a new generation, a post-revolutionary generation, who've been brought up, educated in his lycée, in his universities, in his Grand École, in his military academy, um, who've been auditors on his council of state, who have been trained in the new legal system that, that he's helped create, he's helped foster, and that they will simply move on from the old, from the revolution. He sees on St. Helena that, you know, that couldn't be done, but I think that's his goal. I can see it's a goal of a lot of people. You can see it in policy. Sooner or later, we can dispense with the Talibans and Fouches of this world and all the compromises that entails and move on to a new generation. Who will, who will, who to firm it will mean nothing. And you can see the seeds of that when, say, many people who are from great French aristocratic families who were themselves on a small scale fief holders, because it's not important in most of France. But when they get out to Croatia, when they get into central and northern Germany, they are confronted with what they see as real feudalism when they get into southeastern Spain and into Valencia and they are horrified by what they see you know and they they have subsumed the the ideology of the revolution in that respect through the Napoleonic prison and and you can you can see that happening I think one of the most fascinating things about seniorialism and getting rid of it it's coming out of a lot of new research being done uh, by by very young people I envy them uh, in the lands that were West Westphalia and in, um, in the Duchy of Warsaw and Adam's own patch, is that the desire to get rid of feudalism there runs much deeper than people have hitherto imagined. And where it's thwarted after 1814 is not because it was generally rejected. It's that you've still got French type courts, but they're staffed by very different magistrates who for whom the abolition of feudalism is not desirable you know and i mean they never and, and that's what swarts it not that an effort wasn't made nor that it didn't gain 
support from a lot of peasant communities because the work I myself have done in the German departments of the empire shows that, you know, that is not the case. And people like uh, Nikolai Todorov are finding the same in Westphalia. Um, Schlott, you know, Spatsy is finding it in, in, in Dutch Warsaw. And you will find, I mean, it doesn't work. Say, Murat tries his best. He tries his level best and his team to uproot it in the kingdom of Naples. Hmm. Succeeds in name, you know, but not, not the event. But say, in terms of, come back to the very beginning, yeah, Napoleon is the savior. Um, that's very much, I think, part of the legacy. Yeah, because he wasn't, he was unhorsed by the Senate because he'd ceased to be the savior. He had endangered his own system. You know, I mean, it, what Marx said about Napoleon III, they hired him, they'll fire him. Um, that were Louis Philippe, you know, they hired him, they fired him. I don't know whether that's true or not. I, I think it's, you know, pushing it too far. But it is true of Napoleon the first. They, they hired him yeah. when he endangered the revolutionary settlement as they conceived it. They fired him. That's the bit of the savior legacy that sort of gets buried and forgotten. Where I think the kinship with Macron is, is this belief that we move on to something new. You know, I think there's sometimes nowadays more of a link to Macron than maybe even there was to De Gaulle. Uh, that, 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 that would be my personal view. Uh, is something De Gaulle appropriates. And if you're looking for a global, I think, legacy of Napoleon, something I've become very interested in of late, um, this is where you see it. The man on horseback, as David Bell called him, the, 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 the military figure usually, but not always, but usually the military figure who will come in and restore order, who will save the revolution, not extinguish it. Um, you know, you find that throughout Latin America. Very powerful legacy. I've often felt when people talk about the Atlantic Revolution, they're talking about the wrong Atlantic. It's the South Atlantic where the real European influence is felt. You know, and that's how it's felt in, in the Napoleonic vision of the saviour. Adam, what do you make of a, of a Ukrainian I, I offered you in well, the vision uh, of Napoleon's legacy? Um, well, certainly, that last comment, I agree. Um, Napoleon has served, unfortunately, um, as a model for every tyrant from Bolivar to Bokassa, um, who was able to say, look at me, I'm going to come and uh, restore order and save the whole, um, the, the whole place. And, uh, and usually the, the, the great thing is they say that I will sweep away, clean the Augean stables, sweep away all the corruption and so on and so forth yeah. uh, before indulging it themselves. Um, Yes, that is that is a, a huge and 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 heavy legacy, um, and it, it's. Um, but coming back to what um, Michael said earlier about uh, the the um, um, abolition of feudalism, it's perfectly true that um, that Napoleon really comes along and he. He really opens, it's not that he comes and he, he decides what's to be done. And this, this covers, I think, everything about his uh, political life, is he just leads the way. He says to all those clever people in France, um, come on, follow me, let's do this together and let's make it happen. And he has this extraordinary knack for making things happen and it's true that he he changes the mood and indeed uh, i believe that in 1815 when he landed when news spread throughout parts of germany even that he had landed uh, there were riots and demonstrations of support because already after a year of the wrong people or different people having taken back control, uh, many people felt that a, 
a step back had been taken. So uh, he, he, he did make a huge, huge, um, he as, as the catalyst, as the, uh, as, as the, the, the enabler did make a huge um, contribution to the abolition of feudalism and to the, um, and to attitudes. And coming back to that point that Michael made about the, the, the fusion, his great scheme was, it was fascinating that he actually um, wanted local prefects in the countryside to identify young women of um, descended from ancient noble families uh, as spouses for his generals or functionaries who'd come from less exalted huh. background. So as to create physically as well as educationally, because of course he was through the, the great university and through his schools, the Grand École and, and his um, system, he was creating new, um, new cadre. Um, but he also wanted to create a physical fusion so that the, as it were, the, the, the blood of France's old chivalry would be united with um, the descendants of the sans-culottes. Huh. Uh, and, and to a large extent, uh, he, he was um, very successful in this, and that is a huge legacy. And, and I would say that the, the, the big problem is that um, because the system he put in place was not a democratic one, but one which depended ultimately on appointment. Uh, if you don't have a Napoleon who is a great picker of men at the top, you've just got a bunch of frightful bureaucrats and self-serving, you've got a great self-serving body of administrators. Um, utterly um, deaf to the real demands of the people they're ruling. And I think this has been um, the negative aspect of that legacy. So one last quick fire question before we go. You're both British historians, and it seems like a lot of the biographies published on Napoleon over the past few years have come from Albion, the perfidious Albion. You know, there's, there's, there's uh, your biographies, also Andrew Roberts published a, a great one a few years ago. Uh, Sodia Hazard Singh also has been publishing uh, quite a few biographies from Napoleon. Um, what do you think this is fascination for Napoleon? Uh, is it the, the glory of having beaten the great man by insights for British to write about Napoleon so much? Um, quick fire question, uh, Michael first. It's, well, I'm not, in that sense, I'm not entirely British. Uh, I, had, I had a French grandmother who ah. imbued me with, um, an admiration for him, an admiration for the Republic. She was Protestant, she was Huguenot. Um, imb you know, imbued me with an almost you know, Michelet vision of this that, that uh, you know, I've tried to shake uh, in many ways, but, but, but inspires me. Really intellectually, it's because I began studying the French Revolution. And uh, I just followed on from it. Uh, I, I became fascinated by this great gaping hole in the historiography that you said, why not apply the kind of history that Richard Cobb and his students, I was one of Cobb's students, was busily doing at local level, the kind of themes they explored, apply it to the consulate and the empire. And that's what I did. I did it in Italian, in an Italian context, but that's what drove me on. Adam? Um, <clears throat> well, although I'm, I'm British and, um, and um, by naturalization and I was brought up in, in, in um, Britain um, <clears throat> and educated there. I am of course fundamentally Polish, uh, although I do, I did have a great, uh, a French great grandmother um, <clears throat> and who is actually half German. Um, I've also got amongst my ancestors, uh, Scotsman, um, Italian, um, uh, Russians and even Tatars. Um, I certainly brought up in a kind of um, crossfire of um, because my francophone side was um, 
very very supportive and 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 um, very engoué by um, Napoleon, uh, and the, the Poles, of course, adore Napoleon um, for really almost inexplicable reasons. I mean, they're psychologically explicable, but they're not logically explicable. Um, uh, and uh, so from an early age, I was fascinated by the fellow, but, uh, and I really didn't want to write about him at all because um, I just thought so many people have written about him. Um, but then um, I was actually approached by my German publishers who just would not let go and said, you must write about Napoleon. Uh, so I thought that this was, this couldn't be resisted, um, that to be, for a Pole to be commissioned by Germans to write about Napoleon, I thought was quite a good mixture. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Adam and, and Michael. For diving into the question of whether uh, Napoleon was a European, whether he thought himself as a European, and what legacy left for Europeans. Now that Michael Browers and Adam Zamoyski are out, uh, Francois, what did you think of this uh, Napoleonic uh, hagiography? Hagiography, I, I, I think Adam will be strangling himself when he hears that. I think his, his biography is more critical of, of Napoleon, but I'm really happy we managed to, did, to do this because we have been wanting to get into the business of history a bit more in this podcast because I think it's kind of a dead angle of um, European identity. We rarely bring up history in that conversation, except when we talk about World War II and Never Again, which seems to be the kind of only historical uh, reflection we have about Europe. And so we've been wanting to include history, talk about European people, European figures, European moments, uh, which say a lot about who we are as Europeans, and this is our first uh, attempt at doing so. Now, on the European vision of Napoleon, the theme of this, of this episode, um, what I thought was really interesting is the quote I gave um, from Napoleon, he told his um, Minister of Interior, Joseph Fouché, about what he expects Europe to be, how he wishes to build Europe, is staggeringly modern. I wish to build a European system, a European code of laws, a single currency, a European judiciary. Now, this could be Jean Monnet. I mean, this is incredibly modern. So when I read that, I think it's in, in Michael Barrow's uh, book, I, I, I found that, that quote. I was staggered by how, how modern it sounded. But it was also one of the criticism we can make at, at Europe is um, a lot of it is uh, a bit technocratic. You know, it doesn't it doesn't include a kind of uh, more romantic maybe vision of what different nationalities are and, and sometimes the intractable differences between them. Um, and uh, I thought it was interesting that what remains of Napoleon's vision um, is essentially very technocratic. Uh, a lot of institutions in, in Germany, in Italy, in Spain and in Poland uh, are, you know, legal. Um, so, you know, not, not military, not not non-culture, but on, on kind of very technocratic, legalistic uh, dimensions. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, that's one of the uh, things that we were uh, uh, right to kind of get um, clear the air about right from the bat is that we oftentimes, you know, when we speak, I mean, we, we did try to anchor uh, this episode uh, as uh, a portrait of a man more so than about um, the ideals that he incarnated, right? And and speaking of Napoleon as a European, as a great European, is uh, is I think a very rich uh, subject. But when when you get into all of these uh, traps, is when you start um, uh, doing what the French um, historical um, profession calls uh, le présentisme, right? Is is that when you try to uh, um, uh, do uh, historical science? Uh, with reference to the categories of the present, and you try to retrotract uh, the ideals that we live under, uh, provided that, that you can call them ideals in terms of the U European Union and what it represents. But when you try to retro, um, you know, when you try to find their incarnations in the past, uh, the historical analysis that ensues is necessarily flawed. It mm. doesn't do justice to the particular to the contingency of uh, the times that uh, Napoleon was was uh, was living was living in. So uh, one of the and 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 you see that in in this sort of like you know Napoleon as a uh, as a um, 
uh, patriarch of the European ideal uh, theme is that when when you start uh, dealing with that issue, you realize that uh, there may be some distant similarities between the sort of the, the legal uh, community and, and the economic community and even the uh, idealistic community that he tried to build. There may be some parallels between that. And as you said, maybe, uh, I mean, you mentioned John Monet, not, not, not my reference, yours, but um one of the, re- I mean, what's funny about that comparison is that there are similar in none of the ways that we tend to popularly think, right? Is that, um, I mean, sure, there's, you know, there, I mean, you can, uh, you can, uh, you know, you can, uh, uh, there is, there is the technocratic aspect uh, that, that, that is uh, certainly a, a, um, a constant. Uh, but what I think is, um, uh, is particular about uh, the kind of European Europeanism that governs uh, the EU uh, at, at this uh, uh, stage is uh, a rather progressive nature, is that it wants to transcend European history. It wants to build European history anew. It wants to turn the page. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's about transcending uh, the past in a lot of ways. And, and, um, and I'm not so convinced that Napoleon was as as progressive as the forefathers of the European Union have proved to be. I think he was more of a uh, more of a uh, I wouldn't call him a conservative. Uh, that has a whole host of connotations in the French context that Napoleon was rather identified against. Uh, he wasn't a reactionary, a sort of ancien regime stalwart. He was rather the opposite. But he wasn't a progressive. He wasn't necessarily someone who. Uh, built his political philosophy around the idea of social progress, as as was uh, the case in a lot of um, the people that followed in 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 his century. So so I think we got to be absolutely um, cautious in sort of the comparisons that we draw. And yet, um, you know, again, uh, there there's there's been so much work that has been done recently, as you've uh, mentioned in, in the questions, but also the work of some of the more uh, French uh, authors. Patrice Guénifet was, was, I think, rather uh, uh, pop. His work was re- really popular in terms of uh, uh, portraying De Gaulle and Napoleon as, as, um, as, um, as you know, kindred souls. Um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely, you know, a relevant, a relevant issue that you, you need to come at with, uh, with some degree of, of caution. And, and I wonder, there, there's so much that we've um, disregarded in terms of the French context, right? I mean, you and I have had some conversations about whether um, the ideals that underpin uh, French secularism, this this much uh, no, this notion of which there's uh, much ado with at the moment of laicite, whether that is uh, finds a distant uh, origin in uh, Napoleon's idea of um, not necessarily of a secular state, as Adam uh, pointed out when we were offline just before jumping into the recording. Uh, he was a man who uh, gave uh, religion a really large uh, role in the public sphere, but rather uh, in terms of coexistence between religions. And uh, what really comes to mind is the um, the idea of, uh, you know, integrating, being one of the very first nations that integrates uh, the Israelites, the Jews, uh, in, uh, in the French uh, compact with uh, specific institutions, uh, the Sanhedrin uh, and, and things of that nature. So I wonder if there's, also not another episode to do about Napoleon's greater resonance uh, just within France and its political culture and its history. Well, you know, there is a distinction to be made between Napoleon's approach to religion and the approach to religion, uh, which we call laicite. You know, there are some elements of legacy here, the kind of idea that the, the state should be able to intervene in religious affairs if it's considered to be a threat to public order. I think that says, but there's, there's quite a lot of differences um, since. Um, I, I want to push back a little bit against the idea that Napoleon's regime wasn't that progressive because at the top, it was very autocratic for sure. But at the bottom, it was actually pretty liberal, you know. Um, and it makes me think of you know, those, um, some of those uh, despotic regimes in, 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 in the East, in, in Eastern uh, uh, in the Middle East, who were very, very tyrannical at the top, but, you know, somewhat liberal at the bottom. And so it makes me think of, um, of a book review I read for this, uh, for this um, episode by David, David Bell in The Nation. He drew a very interesting parallel between Napoleon's empire and the EU. It's entitled Enlightened, Undemocratic and Elitist. 
I think enlightened because Napoleon's empire, just like the EU, is has a focus on emancipation of individual rights and protection of individual rights, more precisely, and a protection which is ensured effectively by a sprawling bureaucracy. Um, you know, Balzac described Napoleon's bureaucracy as the nosiest, most meticulous, most scribbling, red tape mongering, controlling, verifying administration, past, present, or future. And you no, know, I'm I'm sure we could have heard some Brexit here made that comparison of the EU's bureaucracy. But it is enlightened in that sense that it believes in protecting individual rights. It is undemocratic because Napoleon was an autocrat. He also had this kind of idea that it was, first of all, impossible to have a, a republic in, in, on, in a large country like France, let alone you know, Europe. And I think there's a little bit of that in, in the EU, which is it, is it is very tough, if not impossible, to have a democracy when you've got such a sprawling continent with different cultures and history. And elitist, because uh, a bit like with the EU nowadays, there is a very strong European sentiment among the kind of enlightened idealists who have been traveling, you know, back then it would be the, the grand tours of Europe. Nowadays it'd be, it'd be Erasmus. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's an interesting comparison here and it makes sense. Maybe uh, the European Union is more Bonapartist than, than we French people think. So I thought, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting parallel here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and listeners will be, uh, will be encouraged uh, to refer back to the episode we did with uh, Daniel, not only Daniel Freed, but also we did a, a bonus uh, episode where uh, you and I uh, kind of um, indulge in, 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 in some rank punditry around strategic autonomy at you know the time when it was being uh, bolstered mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. as a theme in uh, in Brussels, and people will be able to maybe uh, listen to that episode and re-anchor some of the uh, conversations, uh, strategic conversations that we have. Uh, around uh, with reference to Napoleon, but kind of re-anchor them in the present and what uh, incarnations they're finding in uh, European uh, issues at of, uh, the present. So um, thank you so much. And uh, thank you so much for uh, tuning in uh, for yet another week. And we look forward to uh, welcoming you for another episode next week. Hey, before you go, don't forget, please like, review, subscribe, whatever you can do to help. We don't have any ads. You can listen to this from start to finish without someone trying to say you geiko ads or whatever it is um um so yeah you know easiest way to support us is to share it around subscribe like review anyways see you next week see you next week